so good to see you guys, and what a great day it is going to be as we have beach baptism. And if you haven't signed up but you want to get baptized, as Matt just said, just come at 5 o'clock today. We're going to meet at Neptune Baptist Church. There's a little white building right next door to their church that they let us use. And if you want more instructions, there are some printed instructions about what to do and where to show up uh, printed for you. They're in the foyer, so as you make your way out today, pick up one of those. And we would love to be a part of you going public with your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Have you ever, have you ever followed your gut in making a decision only to later regret it? Amanda Keller did just that earlier this year. On May 8th, Ms. Keller, who is a physical therapist uh, from the little town of Haku in Maui, Hawaii, um, decided to go on a walk in the forest. And her white Toyota RAV4 was found with her wallet and her cell phone, but she was nowhere to be found. And when she did not return home when she was supposed to, her family became very concerned. They called local law enforcement. They called their family and friends to help look for Amanda. And for over two weeks, they searched for her. In fact, Amanda's parents had put up a $10,000 reward to get people to help look for her there in the forest. Eventually, she was spotted by a helicopter and was rescued she had suffered during that two and a half plus weeks a fractured leg, um, multiple abrasions, severe sunburn, dehydration, some, and just absolute fatigue. Whenever she gave a report, I heard her say that she had taken a nap during her walk. And when she woke up, she couldn't remember which way to go to get back to her car. And Amanda said, I have a very strong gut instinct, so I followed my gut and I started in one direction. And I just kept going. And I kept taking steps, thinking I was going in the right direction. Until eventually I realized, she said, I was lost. And I don't know about you, but I can relate to Amanda. There have been times that I have faced decisions in life, crossroads in life. Which way do I go? What decision do I need to make? And really at that crossroad, there were only two choices. Either to go God's way or to go my way. To do the right thing or to do the wrong thing. To follow God or to follow my gut. And sometimes in facing moral decisions or spiritual decisions, we make the wrong decision. By not following the path that God has set us on. By not living for Him and doing what He wants us to do. And what happens is we often get off the path of God for our lives. And we get ourselves in trouble. It hurts. Those decisions hurt us and they hurt other people. And listen, they even hurt the heart of God. There's a, there's a word for this. If you're a follower of Jesus or if you know anything about the Bible, you know what it is to, to miss the will of God for your life in making bad choices. It's a simple three-letter word, sin. And I know we don't hear a lot about sin in our culture, but sin is still a reality. And we often flirt with sin thinking we won't be hurt by sin. 
We think we can flirt with it. We think we can get out of God's will and it not really cause us any problems or consequences. But the problem is when you flirt with sin, it is not if, it is when you will be hurt by sin. Sin always hurts you. It hurts other people indirectly and it hurts the heart of God. And when we step away from God, it is a significant step. And that first step away from God makes it easier to take a second step and a third step and a fourth step. And I think if we went around the room this morning and we asked people over the age of 40, have you ever made some decisions that you regretted? Have you ever made some decisions that you knew were wrong? Have you ever done some things that you knew were out of God's will for your life? I guarantee you they would all say, yes, I have many decisions I have regretted. And we could ask the person, well, were you better off or worse off as a result of that decision? And they would say, I was worse off. You see, here's the thing about us. We, we start rationalizing our sin. We, we start making it sound better than what it really is to ourselves. We're about to make a choice. We know it's not the right thing to do. In fact, maybe there is someone in our life who is warning us about this decision. And we rationalize our, our choices. To rationalize is to tell yourself rational lies. We say things like, we say things like this, well, I can handle it. Or we say things like, it's just this one time. Or we say, well, everybody's doing it. Or we say, well, you know, times have changed. Used to be wrong, but times have changed. Or we say, no one will ever know. No one will ever find out. Here's the classic rational lie that we tell ourselves to justify our stepping away from God. We say, but this will make me happy. And after all, God wants me to be happy. And so I'm going to do this because this will make me happy. And so whether it's a relationship, whether it's our finances, whether it's uh, what we watch or we read or we bring into our mind or the entertainment that we use. Often we know it's wrong, but we rationalize stepping away from God. And before we know it, we've taken one step and then two and then three and then four, and we find ourselves in a mess. We find ourselves in a place we didn't think we would be. We find ourselves lost and lonely and hurting in fact, would it surprise you that the person we're studying in this series called the story of David, the person whom God said is a man after my own heart, was capable of stepping away from God. And it hurt him and it hurt his family and it hurt his legacy and it broke the heart of God. That even David, a man after God's own heart, could so sin and mess up his life that we're still talking about it today. Well, that'll bless your heart. If you mess up and people are talking about it centuries later, say, man, well, we're still talking about David even today. One of the reasons we're still talking about it today is because David stepped away from God, and it was such a scandal that people thought, how in the world could he have done that? And listen, this is a warning to me, and I think it's a warning to you, that if David, who was not a saint, he was not perfect, but if David, a man whose heart beat for the heart of God, could do this bad thing, who am I kidding myself to think I'm not capable of absolutely blowing up my life and messing up my life 
by stepping away from God. And you are the same. You're capable. If David was, you're capable. You might not commit the same sin he committed, but we all have an Achilles heel. We all have some area of our life that if we're not careful, we're going to justify, we're going to rationalize, and we're going to step out of the will of God and get ourselves in a mess. But can I tell you the other reason we're still talking about David all these centuries later is not only because his stepping away from God was so scandalous, his decision to step back to God was so awesome. Maybe... For the rest of your life, you'll look back on the life of David when you're at the crossroads of decision and you will say, I remember David's story and I don't want to mess up like that. And his story can be an example for you of how to make the right choice. Go with God. Don't go with your gut. Always go with God. Now, some of us are saying, hey, I've already passed the crossroads. The crossroads are now in my rearview mirror. I've made that step away from God that led to another and another and another. And now maybe your confession today is, man, I'm so far from God. I never thought I'd be here. Is there any hope for me? And from David's story, yes, there is hope for you. Because you don't have to stay away when you've stepped away from God. You can come back. And God wants you to come back. And today we're going to show you the way back to God through the story of David. We don't have time to read all the scripture today that really tells the story of David in this scandalous affair. But in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, we see the background for what we're going to read today in the Old Testament book of Psalms 51. In 2 Samuel 11 and 12, we see the story of David, now king of Israel, has been king for some time. Really, he has led Israel to their golden era in history. He's become the greatest king Israel has ever known, of course, and ever will know, other than Jesus. And in the springtime, when it's time for war, he sends his generals and his soldiers out, but he makes the choice to stay home, to sit this battle out, and to just stay in the palace. And evidently, he is staying up late and sleeping late. Staying up late into the wee hours of the morning, then sleeping during the day like a teenager. Because we read in 2 Samuel that when the evening came, David got out of bed. He's been in bed all day. And he walks out onto the balcony of his palace, and there he is overlooking the surrounding buildings and residences there in the city of Jerusalem. And he happens to see a woman taking a bath down below. And he doesn't just look, he lingers. He doesn't just glance, he glares. And that linger became lust. And as he watched her bathe, he wanted her. He calls one of his servants, isn't that Bathsheba? The wife of Uriah the Hittite? Yes, yes sir, that is. I want her, bring her here. And the servant, in that day, you do what the king says. And if you're a subject to the king like Bathsheba, you do what the king says. And she came into the palace of King David, and David used his position and used his authority to have his way with her. And he used her and dismissed her once he was done. He slept with her and then sent her away. And he thought it was over. He thought it was just this one night stand. He thought no one will ever know. He thought, after all, I'm the king. I deserve to be happy once in a while. 
And yet later, weeks and weeks later, he gets the word from Bathsheba, I'm pregnant. And panic ensues in David's heart. He is so worried that his sin is about to be found out. That his sin is now going to become a scandal as it becomes public. So he concocts a story and a plan. He decides that he needs to get her husband home so that he can sleep with his wife. And everyone will think that the child she's carrying is his. So he calls Uriah home from the battlefront. Uriah comes to the palace. David gets word, how everything, how's everything going on the battlefront? He gives the report, and David says, thank you for that. Now, you're just going home now that you're here. But later, David discovers Uriah didn't go home. Uriah slept on the porch of the palace. And when David confronted him, he said, how can I go home, enjoy the pleasures of home, enjoy the intimacy of my wife's company when the ark of God is in a booth, whenever the men of God are fighting out on the battlefront, sleeping in tents at night, how can I go? I'm a good soldier. It's not going to happen. So David has to come up with another plan. David decides the next day he's going to invite Uriah back to the palace and he's going to wine and dine him. So man, he gives him food, he plies him with wine, and he gets Uriah drunk, thinking if Uriah's drunk, man, he's just going to go home. And like any red-blooded male, he's going he's to want to be with his wife. But even drunk, Uriah was a better man than David was sober because Uriah refused to go and sleep with his wife. And now David realizes this is not working and this man, after God's own heart, who took one step away from God by committing an adultery, who has now taken another step away from God by trying to cover it with lie after lie and scheme after scheme, takes even a greater step away from God when he tells his general, you put Uriah back on the battlefront. The next time you besiege the city, in the pivotal moment of the battle, all of you back off, you withdraw, leave him exposed, and let him get killed. And that's what happened. Uriah's back on the battlefront in the heat of the battle at the decisive moment as they're besieging the city. Unbeknownst to Uriah, everyone else retreats from the battle. Uriah is left there alone, and the archers over the parapets of the city aim at him and kill him. And David is thinking, now no one will know. Because word reaches Bathsheba, your husband's dead. She mourns, she laments. And David, looking magnanimous, says, bring that poor widow into my home. I'll make her my wife. And now people will think that her child is mine rightfully. That's how far away from God he got. God sent some accountability into David's life. A man named Nathan came to David, told David a parable. He said, David, let me tell you, let me tell you a story. It's a story of two men. One of them was very rich and wealthy. The other was very poor. The rich man received a visitor one night. And you know how it is in our culture. Hospitality is everything. It was the rich man's obligation to take care of his guest. Now, the rich man had many herds and flocks. But the poor man, he didn't. All he had was his family. And he had one little ewe lamb. And really, that ewe lamb was more than livestock. That ewe lamb became a pet for the family. And David, you know how pets are. They can become like family. This little ewe lamb ate from the hand of the master. This little ewe lamb played with his children. This little ewe lamb would jump up in his lap. 
He loved that little pet, and his family loved that pet. You know what that rich man did? Instead of killing one of his own lambs to feed his guest, he went over and stole the poor man's one and only ewe lamb and fed it to his guest. And when David heard that, David was furious. David says, as sure as the Lord lives, that man deserves to die. How could he be so cruel? How could he be so insensitive? And he needs to repay fourfold what he has taken from that poor man. And probably one of the most pivotal moments in Scripture, one of the most intense moments of Scripture, is when Nathan, with the courage of God, points his finger at David and says, you are that man. And he confronted David with his sin. You're the one who took Uriah's one and only wife, the wife he loved. You defrauded him. You stole from him. And then you had him killed to cover your sin. You are the man. Now for months, David has tried to cover his sin tried to ignore it, tried to stuff it down, tried to act like no one would ever find out. But in this moment, he is confronted and he is broken. And finally, the facade of his excuses and rational lies fall away and David is broken in remorse and tears. He says, oh God, what have I done? God, please forgive me. And Nathan tells him, because you're repenting, God has heard your prayer. God's going to forgive you. But there are going to be consequences to your sin. So how did David come back to God? Well, in Psalm 51, David recounts his own steps that he took coming back to God. And that's what I want to talk about in these next few minutes today. Psalm 51, I'm back reading from the English Standard Version. But here's the news from David is you don't have to stay away. When you've stepped away from God, you can come back. There were five steps David took to come back to God. These are the five steps you can take to come back to God. The first step is come back to God on the basis of his mercy, not your merit. If you finally come to realize you stepped away from God and your sin has broken you, it's broken your relationships, it's certainly broken the heart of God, and you want to come back, the first step is to come back to God on the basis of God's mercy, not your merit. This is how David puts it in Psalm 51. This is his prayer to God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. David is saying, oh God, I need you to be merciful to me. Be merciful to me. Do it according to your mercy. Do it according to your steadfast love. David is calling out on that love, that covenant-keeping, loyal love of God. It's the word we talked about last week, sometimes translated kindness. It's the Hebrew word. We would spell it in English, H-E-S-E-D, hesed. It means God, I've not been loyal to you. I've not been faithful to you. God, I've not kept the covenant I made with you to be a man after your own heart. But I need you out of mercy to keep the covenant with me. I need you to show kindness to me. I don't deserve it, God. But I'm just asking you for mercy. I'm asking you for grace. I'm asking you for kindness. 
David could have played the oldest game known to man long before Parker's brothers ever showed up. Remember in the Garden of Eden, Eve had been deceived by the serpent and sinned by disobeying God. Adam, the Bible says, sinned with his eyes wide open. He knew what he was doing was wrong. And later when God confronted Adam, why have you done this? Adam played the blame game. Adam said, it's that woman that you gave me. He's blaming Eve and he's even blaming God. And David could have done the same thing. God, why was she out there bathing where I could see her? It was her fault. And I hear men make those kind of excuses. Well, if they didn't dress like that, then maybe guys wouldn't treat them like that. As if they deserve that. And you can excuse your sin. Well, if I were happy at home, if my wife were meeting my needs, I wouldn't have been tempted. Well, this is just what kings do. This is the prerogative of kings. If I see something and I want it, that's what a king gets. David could have made all kinds of excuses, and he could have come to God saying, I want you to forgive me. I know I was wrong, but God, you understand, don't you? You understand my circumstances. God, you get it. You know how hard it is. I deserve your forgiveness. But David recognized he did not deserve it. He deserved only judgment for his sin. And if he received anything good from God, it would be based on God's mercy, not David's merit. Dear friend, when you come back to God, don't come back to God with your excuses. Don't come back to God with your explanations. Come back to God and cast yourself on his mercy and his grace and his love and his kindness. Come back to God on the basis of his mercy, not your merit. And then secondly, confess your sins to God. You don't just come back. You need to come back and own up to what you've done. You need to confess your sins to God. David does that in verses 2 through 5. Verse 2, he says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He has already described his Action in verse 1 as my transgression. Now in verse 2, he calls it my iniquity and my sin. My transgression. The word transgression means to break the law. He's saying, God, you drew a line in the sand and I crossed it. It's my transgression, God. I can't blame anyone else. The word for iniquity means perversion. It means to take something that is right and something that is good and twist it and use it for something bad. Sex is good. It's a good gift from God. But David was breaking the will of God with sex outside of marriage and taking another man's wife. There's no justification for that. Never has been. Never will be. Your job and my job is to be loyal for life. To the spouse that God has given us. Why? Because God is loyal to me. And he wants me to be loyal as a reflection of his loyal love. And then the word sin means to miss the mark. So God puts a a, a bullseye and he says the bullseye is the will of God for your life. And we sin by doing anything short of what God has said we are to do. And we do miss the mark so often. And David is confessing his sin. God is my 
transgression. It's my iniquity. It is my sin, and I'm confessing it to you. Verse 3, for I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. For months, David tried to hide his sin, but he couldn't get away from it. It haunted him day and night. A guilty conscience, fear he was going to be caught, worried about what people would think of him, lived in denial, and and would not confess his sin for months. Look at verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. How can David say against you and you only have I sinned? What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about the commanding officer to whom he gave an illegal order? David is not minimizing his sin against them, but what David is trying to confess here is, God, first and foremost, I'm going to stand before you one day, and I'm going to give an account to you, my God, my creator, the great lawgiver, and the judge of every human heart, and it's really ultimately against you that I've sinned. It was your law I broke. And even these people that I have hurt, it still points back to you because I've sinned against people who are created In the image of God. That's why sin against other people is so serious. You're attacking people whom God loves. You're hurting people made in His image. And one day we will all stand before God and give an account of how we've lived our lives. And David recognized it. And he says, God, you are going to be perfectly justified and blameless in what you say and in what you do about my sin. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Here again, David is not saying that uh, sex between his mom and dad was a sin. Sex is a bad thing. No, no, what he's trying to say is that we are all born into this world with a sin nature. That we are sinners by nature, but we're also sinners by choice. For example, you make choices every day that you know are right or wrong. But you also know that the tendency of your heart is to step away from God, not to God. To follow your gut and follow your flesh and follow popular opinion rather than to always follow God. It's why, parents, you don't have to teach your little kids how to throw temper tantrums. You do not have to teach them how to hit their siblings. You don't have to teach them how to be self-centered. They are born with that knowledge. You've got to teach them how to not do those things and how to not be those things. And what David is saying is, God, I'm coming to you based on your mercy, not my merit. I'm confessing my sin to you. And God, without you, I am hopeless. God, there is nothing good in me. God, you're my only hope. So come to God on the basis of his mercy. Confess your sin to God. Name it and nail it. And then number three, step number three, count on God to forgive you and to cleanse you. Count on God. Trust in God. Believe that God is going to hear your prayer when you come to him for mercy, when you confess your sin. Count on God. Depend on God to forgive you. 
means to cancel your debt. You don't owe God anything anymore and to cleanse you. To not only cancel your debt, but to clean you up so that when God now looks at you, he doesn't see you with that filth in your life, but he sees you forgiven and clean in his sight. And that's what David wants. Verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. What he's saying is, is, is God, I know that, that what you're looking for is integrity in my life. And God, I've learned my lesson deep down inside in my heart. I know that's what you want. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop was a little herb that would grow in the, in the cracks of the walls around Jerusalem and in the Holy Land. It would grow in the crevices of the hillside. These little bushy herbs. And they were often used in the Old Testament with the Jewish priest. They would take those branches of hyssop and they would dip them in holy water and sprinkle people who had been declared ceremonially clean. Other times it would be dipped in the blood of a sacrificial animal and sprinkled as a symbol that the people of God's sin are atoned for, but it cost someone else their life for sin to be forgiven. A sacrificial substitute, an animal had to die for you. And so David has this imagery, and he said, Oh, God, I want to be cleansed. God, I want to be clean. God, I want to be purged from my sin that has tainted my soul. And the good news is, for New Testament Christians, we don't have to look for a priest and a branch of hyssop sprinkled in water or blood. No, we just look back to the cross of Calvary and the empty tomb where the Lamb of God shed His blood so that we could be forgiven of our sins and cleansed so that we could know that we have what we need. That's why the Apostle John would say in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word confess in the Greek that John uses in that first epistle of John is a word that means to say the same thing. It's the Greek word homo legeo. Homo means same. Legeo means word. So to confess is to say the same word. God called this sin. I'm going to call it sin. And the good news is when you confess your sin to God, he's faithful and he's just to forgive you. Cancel your debt, erase it from the ledger, and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Doesn't mean you don't have a past. It doesn't mean there aren't consequences to your choices. But it does mean when God looks at you, he looks at you spotless and righteous in his sight. And you need to count on God to forgive you and to cleanse you. Step number four, call on God to give you a fresh start. Call on God to give you a fresh start. That's what David wanted. David knew he could not go back and undo what he did, but he could ask God in grace, mercy, and forgiveness for a fresh start from this day forward. There are no do-over days. We can only go from this moment forward asking God for a fresh start. Psalm 51 verse 10 
Did I skip a couple of verses? I get so excited. <laughs> Read verses 8 and 9, and we'll, we'll keep moving. Uh, I can't skip those. I got so excited about the next two. Actually, I saw the clock. Uh, look at verse 8. <laughs> says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. So he's saying, God's sins destroyed my joy. I want it back, and I'm going to count on you. Now let's keep moving. Uh, step four, call on God to give you a fresh start. Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is David calling out to God for a fresh start. God, I need a clean heart. My heart's been dirtied by sin. God, I need a right spirit within me. My spirit, my attitude, my heart's been wrong this whole year as I've hidden this sin in my heart. God, I need something new from you, a new work of your grace. And he says, don't cast me away from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Sometimes New Testament Christians say, oh, I could lose the Spirit of God when I sin. No, you can't. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would anoint the kings and priests and prophets to do their particular job. But if they rejected God, God would remove his power and his presence from them. Remember, Saul rejected God, so God says, I've rejected you. And that's what David is worried about. David is saying, God, I don't want to be like Saul. I know I've rebelled against you, but my heart is still right I want to be used by you, God. Don't take your Holy Spirit. Don't take the throne from me. Don't take the kingdom from me. Don't take my ministry from me. There's still work that I know you have for me to do. But I need you to restore the joy of your salvation. I've lost my joy. That's what sin does. It steals your joy. Oh, We overestimate the pleasures of sin in the short term, and we underestimate the pain of sin in the long term. I'm not going to stand here and tell you that sin's not fun. You'd say, that preacher's out of touch with reality. Sin can be fun, and it can. But the short pleasures will fade away, and you'll be left with the pain and the price that sin will exact on you. And for a year, David has been miserable. One night of pleasure, a whole year of misery. A ruined reputation, broken spirit, broken family, broken fellowship with God. Was it worth it, David? He would say, no, it was not worth it. I need God to restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sometimes maybe you come to church and you say, well, I just, you know, my heart's not here. They don't preach like they used to and they don't sing like they used to. And the church isn't what it used to be. It could be you're not who you used to be. You walk in the door with sin in your heart. You're flirting and playing with sin. You're hiding rather than confessing it, rather than coming clean with God. And one of the judgments of God is you're now suffering the consequences. Don't blame everybody else. Maybe you need to come in here one Sunday, maybe today, in your prayer, oh God, I need the joy of salvation back in my life. I remember when worship was awesome. I remember when I couldn't get enough reading my Bible. I remember when I couldn't wait to get in that life group. I couldn't wait to help other people. But I've lost my joy. Can I give you the fifth step? 
I'm going to anyway. Look at verses 13 through 17. And I love this step that David takes and that you need to take. The fifth and final step, last but not least, when you want to come back to God, commit to using your past mistakes for future ministry. Dear friend, God's not done with you. I don't know your story, don't know your sin, don't know the situation that you were in, but I know my Savior. He's not done with you. And David is saying, God, would you use my past mistakes for future ministry? Verse 13 He says, then, God, whenever you've forgiven me, cleansed me, restored me, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. God, I'm going to get in the faces of some people like Nathan got in my face and I'm going to say, you're the man, you're the woman, you got sin in your life. It's not going to help you. It's going to hurt you. Take it from me. I've been down the road. You're on. But we've got a gracious God. We've got a merciful God. We've got a forgiving God. And he wants you to come home to him. David says, God, that's what I'll do when you forgive me, cleanse me, restore me. I'm going to teach transgressors your ways and God's sinners are going to come back to you. You're going to use me to bring people back to you. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. God, I'm going to praise you like I haven't praised you in a long time. People are going to hear about your righteousness because I'm going to be the loudest voice in worship. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. That's what David is praying for. David is saying, God, I want to get back in the game. I believe you're not finished with me. You've got a purpose for my life. I don't want my mistakes in my past to hold me back. I want you to do something in me and through me. I posted the bottom line of today's message on Facebook last night. You don't have to stay away when you've stepped away from God. And one of our church members shared it on her Facebook page, and she said, tomorrow's message is going to speak to my soul. In my past, when I thought I had already messed up so bad that I couldn't ever get back to Christ, boy, I was so wrong. I pray this message reaches someone who needs to be here, that it's okay to start over. It's okay to come back. Dear friend, that's the message that God has for you today through David. Don't believe the lie that your past will hold you back. Your past can become a platform for your ministry in the future. God can take your mess and give you a message. God can take your tragedy and give you a testimony that's going to help somebody else. And the only one who doesn't want you coming back to God and helping other people is the devil himself. God waits for you. God wants you to come back. God welcomes you to come back. And David knew it. David said, do I have to go and offer a sacrifice at the temple? No. Do I have to put more money in the offering plate? No. Then what do I need to bring God? David brought to God the same thing every single one of us in this room can bring to God when we want to come back. Look at verses 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. David says, God, all I can bring to you is my broken heart over my sin. And cast myself on your mercy. And David knew that offering God will never reject. I don't know who you are, what you've done, where you've been, but I can promise you this. You come to God with a broken heart, he will hear your prayer 
He will forgive your sin. He will cleanse you, and he will give you a new purpose in life. Come to him. Let's pray together in the stillness of this moment. Maybe this is your prayer while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. Maybe your prayer is, God, I want to come home. I want to come back to you. I've made a mess of my life. I've sinned against you and I've hurt others in the process. God, I need your forgiveness. I need your cleansing. I need your joy. I need your strength to recover. God, I'm a messed up person. But you're a merciful and loving God. You gave your son Jesus in order to be the basis of my forgiveness. He took the punishment for my sin when he suffered and died on the cross. And he rose from the dead. And he lives to forgive all who come to him with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. So God, I come. In Jesus' name, I come. I want to come home. Thank you for welcoming me home. Father, whatever we need to do right now in the stillness of this moment to come back to you, may we take that step, that first step now by coming to you on the basis of your mercy. For every Christian in this room, thank you that you can restore and cleanse. Maybe there's somebody for the very first time in their life, they need to come to Jesus as their Savior. They haven't even taken that first step. I pray that today, by faith, they'll receive him into their life by turning from their sin and believing on Jesus. It was Jesus, after all, who promised, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God, we thank you and praise you for the decisions that are being made right now in each heart in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.